Well, Bruce Banner was a mild-mannered, socially awkward, withdrawn academic type. Despite his social awkwardness, Bruce was described as self-assured, sarcastic, quick-witted, quick-tempered, and yet had a deep compassion for people. He was known for his intelligence and his creativity, and because of his brilliance, he spent his time inventing things. And one of the things he invented was a new bomb that used gamma radiation. Well, one day, as he was tinkering with this bomb, he, he was about to test it in a field when he noticed a young Ricky Jones venture into the testing site and at the last minute managed to tackle Ricky into a ditch and lie over him and shield his body from the gamma radiation. And he barely survived... He was in hospital for a long time. They left him for dead. But he did recover, and this radiation had an unexpected result. Bruce found that when he got really, really angry, he would suddenly morph into a giant, muscular, green creature, a hulking monster, which the newspapers would simply refer to as the Incredible Hulk. The Hulk's superpower is that of limitless strength and invincibility, which grows exponentially the more angry he becomes. So under emotional stress, sudden danger, or the mild-mannered Bruce Banner transforms into the Incredible Hulk in an involuntarily morphing to this raging, violent, unstoppable creature. The Incredible Hulk's creator, Stan Lee, um, said that he realized comic book readers would be fascinated by a hero that was more like an anti-hero, one that was uh, out of control and was able to um, uh, wreak such havoc and destruction, a hero who was flawed, unpredictable, and destructive. But at the same time, people would learn to love the Hulk because all of his violence and his anger and his rampages of destruction were always directed at the bad guys. His anger was only provoked by evil and injustice, and when he raged and ranted, it was always in the service of the general good of the rest of the world. So, tonight we're going to meet a real-life Hulk. Turn in your Bibles to the days the judges ruled Israel, chapter 14. Judges 14. Now, you'll remember at this cycle in the book of Judges, you have um, Israel living under the oppression of the Philistines. The Philistines were a seafaring nation, somewhat related to the Phoenicians that had invaded through the Mediterranean Sea and had occupied the western coastline of Israel. They'd been there now for a long time. The Israelites had not even bothered to resist them. Um, they've been stewing in their sin for 40 years, the Israelites have. In fact, intermarrying with the Philistines and uh, starting to worship their god Dagon, the fish god, and their uh, feminine god that was introduced into Israel's worship at this point, the Ashtaroth. So last time we saw that God did not wait for them to initiate repentance. This is a new low point in the book of Judges in that this time that Israel is not even calling out for God's uh, deliverance, but that God initiates this entirely. He, showing the, the fruitlessness um, of their goddess, the Ashtaroth, who was a goddess of fertility, uh, he appears as the angel of the Lord, God does, to Manoah's wife, who herself could not have children. And so he grants her fertility in this miraculous conception of her um, son and tells her beforehand that this son, even from the womb, was to be set apart for special service for God and that he was to be a Nazarite. Nazarite is a very specific type of consecration 
that is mentioned in the book of Deuteronomy, and it refers to a person who does not cut their hair for the time of their vow, uh, a person who may have no contact with a dead body, a, a human dead body, and even if somebody dies near you, you are considered unclean, and you have to shave your head and restart your whole vow. And also, he was not allowed to have any fruit of the vine, so he could not drink wine or eat grapes or raisins or vinegar or anything like that. So this is where we find ourselves, and remember, we, we made the point that Samson, known for his long hair, this Nazarite vow was important because the Philistines throughout history have been known as people where the men wear short hair, they wear cropped hair. And um, if you go to a, a museum in Israel, for example, in, in the Ashkelon area, there's a museum that has a mural that has survived from um, ancient times of the Philistines, and they're there with their little round shields and their long spears, which was characteristic of their warfare, and they all have cropped hair. And so God did not want this Nazarite to blend in. He wanted him to stand out. And so the hair is very symbolic of that clash with Philistia. And the whole point of this deliverer that was coming in this way was to deliver Israel from the oppression of the Philistines. So this is where we find ourselves in the narrative. Today we actually get to meet our anti-hero himself. Just to remind yourself, in, in chapter 13, verse 24... That, that chapter ends with the woman, Manoah's wife, bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and Yahweh blessed him. And the spirit of Yahweh began to stir him in Mahanedan between Zorah and Eshtahol. So that's the Philistine area. His name, Samson, uh, literally means sunny or sunshine. His future must have seemed bright to his parents uh, when things were bad. The Israelites would long for one to come and bring light to their dark situation. They would long for somebody to come and liberate them from their oppressors. They would long for one that they would call the Messiah, one that would come and deliver their people. And so here we have this, this person, maybe this is him. He comes with an angelic announcement, a miraculous conception, a specially dedicated child, a promise of deliverance, supernatural strength from the Spirit of God. This has got to be the Messiah. So let's meet our superhero. Now, I'm just warning you, tonight's outline is a little bit quirky, but here it is. Hopefully it'll help you remember this passage. Our chronicle unfolds in four scenes. The honey, the other honey, the homies, and the Hulk. And hopefully that'll make sense by the end, okay? So let's first uh, see the first scene here where we meet our first honey. Um, in verse 1, it says... 14 verse 1, Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Okay, so stop there for now. So far, so good. Here he goes down to this little town. He sees this girl. She's a looker. She's this honey that he is attracted to, as it were. Um, his mom has no problem with him going down to Timnah, the Philistine city, because uh, this is what Yahweh said would happen through the angel of the Lord that he would be stirred up against the Philistines. So she probably packs him a lunch, you know, sharpens his sword, sends him off, and says, you know, go and overthrow the governor, sweetie. Um, and so Samson goes down to Timnah, and he's supposed to wreak havoc down there, and he's supposed to overthrow the place, and instead he meets a honey. And uh, he is attractive to her. So even though in verse 5 it said he shall, of chapter 13, it said he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines, he returns home without their blood splattered on him. Instead, he is drooling and going gaga for this gal that he met. Verse 2. He came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. What? 
Here is the anticipation of the Messiah is devastated in this one turn of events. Instead of fighting the nation of the Philistines, he wants to marry into the nation of the Philistines. His parents are suitably distressed. In verse 3, his father said, and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among our people that you must go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Now, your version might say, she looks good to me. And that's actually capturing the sense of what he's saying. She's good looking. She looks suitable to me. But I like that the ESV has translated it this way. Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Because this catchphrase, this little slogan of Samson's, is the same slogan that the narrator of the whole book of Judges uses as the the catchphrase for the whole book. Remember that this is the day when there's no king in Israel and everyone does what is right in his own eyes. And so here you have Samson. Samson is the poster boy for postmodernism. The the essence of postmodernism is that uh, there's not just one absolute right or wrong. What's right for you might be wrong for me. What's right for me is wrong for someone else. And we all kind of pick and choose. And here you have Samson. What's right and wrong to the Jewish people, to to the Israelites, what's right and wrong to God really doesn't play into his thinking at all. Uh, I want her, not because she's a godly young woman that's going to lead me to be a faithful uh, follower of Yahweh, not because she's one of the Israelites. I want her because she is right in my eyes. And we do whatever is right in our eyes in the days that the judges ruled Israel. So here we have this Philistine filly right in his eyes, and that's all that matters to him. The Savior of Israel turns out to be self-centered, self-governed, and all is lost. Or is it? Verse 4. His father and mother did not know that it was from Yahweh. For he, God was, seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. And a reminder, at that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Here in verse 4, we find out something that by now in the book of Judges you should realize. God is always at work. And this is a lesson for us because sometimes we have high hopes for someone in our family and they, they dash our hopes with their foolish choices, and we think that they're stepping outside of God's will, and maybe they are stepping outside of his revealed will, as Samson clearly is, told not to marry uh, a Gentile, and yet he's doing that. But you can never step outside God's ordained will. You can never do something that God is caught off guard by, that God is surprised by, that he's not in control of. And even this foolish decision, this sinful decision, is being used by God. God knows and has ordained that even this relationship, this sinful decision out of his free will, Samson has chosen this woman for the worst possible reason. She looks good to me. Um, Because of that, these parents are distressed, as all of us would be as parents, and yet the reason they were distressed is because they didn't know, they didn't understand, they were not trusting in the fact that this whole situation is from Yahweh. And you need to remember that when you are at your most distressed, it's usually because you are least in tune with the fact that everything that happens is of God. And that's what we see happening here. God is at work in this young man's life. 
Samson is not a role model. We want him to be a role model with his, his angelic announcement and his miraculous conception and, and the, the wonderful circumstances, the wonderful hope that we have in. We want him to be the Messiah at this point in the narrative. We, we want the, the end of the oppression of Israel, and he's not a role model. His muscles don't make morals. He's no superhero. He is an anti-hero. He's anti-authority, anti-establishment, self-absorbed, sinful, just like the Israelites who had no concern for God's law, God's plans, or God's will. He has no concern for God's will for his life or for the plans of Israel. He's just doing what's right in his own eyes, and yet God is using that with devastating effectiveness, as we shall see. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but Yahweh establishes his steps. Romans 8.28 says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Ephesians 1.11 speaks of us having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Maybe you sometimes feel like the world is spiraling out of control. Maybe you had high hopes for somebody and now those hopes have been dashed by their decisions. Maybe somebody let you down. Maybe you've, you've raised your children to, to follow the Lord and now they meet some honey at college, some muscle-bound loser, and they fall in love and they turn their back on all the things that you've taught them. And you lose hope. You might bemoan the foolish choices that your grown son or daughter make. You might not approve of their choice of spouse. But you have to remember, no matter what happens, God's plan is on track. God is working a journey with that person. They need to come to a certain point that you can't bring them to. Only God can. God's plan is always on track. There might even be, let me just make this clear, there might even be consequences for their foolish decisions. There might be heartache and difficulty brought into that person's life, that person that you love, that person that you, you were hoping to protect from those consequences, from that folly. But their folly, their sin, their decision has brought them to a point that there will be consequences that could last years, and, and we shall see that in Samson's life. And yet even that is used of the Lord to accomplish his purpose. And one day we will see all the while that God was on his throne, even though you did not know that it was from Yahweh that he was seeking an opportunity to do something. So that's our first scene here, this Philistine honey that he has fallen in love with. Let's carry on with the story. Now we get to the second point, the other honey. Um, verse 5. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him, Roaring. So the idea is now they're going down together, but at some point they're separated and he is, he's on his own. Then the spirit of Yahweh rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands, 
and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and his mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. So his father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. So just stop there for a moment, let's kind of explain what's going on here. Um, This is the first use of Samson's supernatural strength. So maybe, maybe he knew that he had this power, maybe he didn't, but this is the first time he, it, it happens. It just it spontaneously happens. He's in sudden danger. He's walking alone. This lion comes at him. And he, he gets a fright. He kind of morphs into this superhuman, powerful, invincible person and grabs this lion and with his bare hands tears him as easy as it is to tear a young goat. Now, I've never torn a young goat can't imagine that being an easy thing to do either, but it's certainly easier than tearing a young lion, okay? So that's what's happened here. He, he rips this lion up, tosses it to the side of the road, and walks on thinking, what just happened there? And is just mulling over this power that he has. And something that always gets me about superheroes in the comic books is they're always really good at keeping secrets about their identity. And I would, I would never be able to. I mean, if I were, if I were Spider-Man, I would just pew, pew, in front of everybody all the time. Like, I would get whatever I wanted all the time. You know, don't mess with me, I'm the Hulk. Um, but this, for some reason, the superheroes always keep this power of their secret, and there's some instinct in him that tells him not to tell anybody about this. By the way, this is why, last week I mentioned to you, my theory is that Samson is not a particularly muscular person. He would, I, don't picture you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger playing um, Samson. You know, picture some wiry, thin dude. Uh, He's just a normal guy because later on everyone is befuddled by the secret of his strength. If he had muscles, it would almost get in the way of how unusual and supernatural and shocking this power is. He certainly uh, seems surprised by it. He keeps it secret. Nobody knows what's happened, but he's had this power. God is preparing Samson for his task. God is giving Samson a trial run, uh, a sparring partner, to show him this is what you can do when you need to, when you get into physical trouble. Remember how David had the confidence that he would be able to kill Goliath? Remember that when he spoke to Saul in 1 Samuel 17, 37, David said, Yahweh who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. So young shepherd boy David, using his sling, was able to kill lions and bears and realized this is going to work on you know, a clumsy giant as well. And so he had that confidence. He had been prepared. In the same way, this little incident, we will see it actually plays a significant part in what's about to happen, but this is God preparing Samson. And so sometimes you have to ask yourself when something happens to you, maybe this is God preparing me for something. Now you, you can't connect the dots yet. If you haven't read the rest of the story, this, what's the point of this? What did this poor lion do? You know, like, why kill a lion? Uh, you know? But there's, there's method here. There's, there's this preparation. And sometimes things happen to us, and we don't even know why they're happening. We, I don't know what that is. I don't know why, I'm, why this happened to me. But God is preparing you for something that later on you've had some experience. And sometimes he teaches us to trust him in these smaller situations so that when a big situation comes on, those muscles of trust have been exercised. And that's kind of what's happening here. Samson is learning to go with the Spirit of the Lord, to trust that he's going to be safe and that he can take on this task when it's needed. 
So that's the, the other honey, the literal honey that he finds in the corpse there. Now, bear in mind that food eaten from the corpse of an animal is unclean. It's ritually unclean. You're not allowed to do that. In fact, the law of Moses says that even if an animal dies and it isn't killed, but, you know, basically if you find roadkill, you can't eat roadkill. Um, you can't eat something that dies on its own because it might have died of a disease, it might have uh, died because another animal has killed it or whatever it is. In this case, you know, he kills this lion and he eats it. So he has, he has done something that his mother was told he was never allowed to do. He was, in Deuteronomy, uh, in Numbers chapter 6, sorry, the, the um, stipulations for a Nazarite is that he may never eat anything unclean. So he's just broken part of being a Nazarite by eating something unclean. And he gives it to his mom and dad and doesn't tell them, oh, look, I got you some honey on the way. Where did you get it? <clears throat> Never mind. You know, <laughs> um, the carcass of roadkill, mom. No. So he doesn't tell them. So they don't even know that he's starting to break his Nazarite vow. That becomes significant later again. Okay, let's move on to the third point here. We meet some new people. We meet the homies. Okay, verse 10. And the man of Judah, so, so how far did we get here? We got to... Um, Sorry, verse, uh, yeah, we, the caucus of the lion, verse 9, verse 10. His f father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. This is a custom. It's a bachelor party, basically. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you... 30 linen garments, and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle, that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. So stop there for a moment. Samson, Samson is always alone. He's the one-man army. He's the one judge that doesn't have a backup team. He, he doesn't have an army that's going to come to help him deliver them. This is all up to Samson. And he keeps wanting to blend in, but God wants him to be isolated. He keeps wanting to fit in with the Philistines, and God wants him to be alone and separate from the Philistines. He's, he has to be the wrecking ball that just bounces around smashing Philistines, but he wants to just blend in like everybody else. So he's marrying a Philistine. He gets there. The people have to invite 30 companions because he doesn't even have any friends. He doesn't have any Philistine friends. And so they have this party. Who do you usually invite to your bachelor party? You invite your closest buddies, your homies. So these are standing in. These 30 guys are standing in. They're his homies. They're his posse, you know. This is, this is his gang. You're going to now, you're going to be able to fit in. You're going to have some friends. You're going to have this party together. These people are going to be in your life forever. But that's not what God wants. And so without even knowing it, Samson makes this social faux pas. And he makes this mistake in that it's all in good fun, but he has this riddle and it's a party game, but the stakes are pretty high, aren't they? It's 30 to 1 odds against Samson, but he's got this riddle that he's created, and if they figure it out, then he has to go and buy them each a suit. That's going to be extremely expensive, you know, linen garment and a change of clothes, but if he wins, then they each only have to buy one suit, so it's kind of fair, and then he has a wardrobe for the rest of his life. So this is an, an interesting little 
groomsman trick. The way I did it on my groomsman, I had like six groomsmen, and they were all preachers, and we found a little Armenian um, sewing joint in L.A., this like back alley of L.A., where they said, if you buy six suits, the seventh one is free. And so with, complete with shirt, belt, socks, everything. And so I took them there and said, each of you buy yourself a suit. You're all a preacher, you're gonna need a black suit at some point for a funeral, and they all bought themselves suits and I got my wedding suit for free because I couldn't afford a suit. And they were happy with that because they got good suits too and we still have those suits. I made it up to them, I got them each a sword. But it will... So here he's playing this game with his, his uh, homies. It's a party trick, but it's about to go wrong. Um, this is the riddle. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. Now, I like what the ESV has done here. It shows the playfulness of the riddle. It's actually well-crafted. It doesn't rhyme in the Hebrew. I'm going to read it for you in Hebrew. I'm going to try my best here. I have to do this for a class I'm taking, so I might as well practice on you. But listen to the assonance and the rhythm that he's got here. It says, Mahakal yatsa makel ve ma'atz yatsa matok. So it doesn't rhyme. But there's a lot of the you know, in there. So there's this, like, there's this rhythm and there's this playfulness in it. And it's all good fun, but things go wrong because verse 15 says, on the fourth day, so they can't guess it, time's running out, on the fourth day they say to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? So this again shows that Samson's 30 homies aren't his friends. They've just been invited here because you need somebody for your bachelor's party. He's still an outsider. And so she fears for her life, so she uses her superpower. Her superpower is nagging. Nagging. Proverbs 27, 15 says, A continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. To restrain her is to restrain the wind or grasp oil in one's hand. A dripping tap on a rainy day, just that, you know, that little drip, 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 drip all day long that drives you nuts, that's a wife and nags. And he has this wife. This, by the way, foreshadows the Delilah situation in the future, doesn't it? So his two weaknesses are, well, razor blades and pretty women who nag. And so verse 16, Samson's wife wept over him and said, you only hate me. You do not love me. You've put a riddle to my people and you've not told me what it is. And he said to her, behold, I've not even told my father or my mother. And shall I tell you? He hasn't done premarital here. <laughs> 17. So she wept before him the seven days, the whole feast. She's just weeping. And there, the seven days that the feast lasted. And on the seventh day, he told her because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day, before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, hmm, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. So you see what's going on here is now she nags and nags and nags. And he's like, okay, fine. Sometimes Kim and I do this playfully with one another. If we want to get the other one to do something, we say, you only hate me. You don't love me. I mean, this is just rank emotional manipulation. Like, you don't love me unless you go and make me a cup of tea right now. You only hate me. And then I'm like, okay, I'll go make the tea. Um, that's what's happening here. It's, it's, she's just wearing him down. And you think he would have learned his lesson, but this is a lesson he never learns. So they guess the riddle, um, and they, they also phrase it in a way that sounds fun. And then he 
comes up with this, he knows what happened. Basically, you know, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. And you think, that is a very strange thing to say. But this is what it is in the, the Hebrew. Lule haratzem be'elgati lo matzam higatati. So it rhymes. <laughs> so that's why he says it that way. So he's picking the word heifer just because it, it rhymes with riddle. Those two words rhyme there. So for us, it would be like, um, well, if you hadn't been playing with my dame, you wouldn't have guessed my game. <laughs> you know? So he's just trying to, trying to find a word for the honey that's, uh, that rhymes with riddle, and he comes up with this word for heifer. Okay, n not smart. But anyway, um, the game backfires badly. He's liable to this huge payout. He knows that the leak is the leaky tap bride that he has. And, but this is a spark that ignites a chain of events that leads to the destruction of the Philistines. So this just sounds like a, a, a random event that's happening at the bachelor party, but this is a very significant moment because here he's trying to blend in with the Philistines, but even his own wife, a Philistine, she sides with her people over him, and he's the outsider again. And he goes ballistic. He, turned, he goes full-on Hulk here. He goes postal. He goes into town. This brings us to our fourth point, the Hulk. And yeah, he just, he just morphs into this uncontrollable, unpredictable, well, I mean, he, he's a murderer, really. Verse 19, he's a mass murderer. The spirit of Yahweh rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave their garments to those that had told the riddle. And in hot anger, he went back to his father's house. So he storms into town. He's, a, he's like a Terminator. He's just a killing machine. And you can sort of see him sizing up people. And when he's, oh, this one of my 30 companions is a, a 42 regular. That poor sap wearing that suit is a 42 regular. And he just goes and kills him, strips him. And he does this 30 times. And he comes back to the party with all of these bleeding garments and dumps it on him and says, there you go. Thanks to my heifer. You know, I, I know this is your style because I took it from your people. You know, that kind of thing, like, boom. And he's at odds with them immediately. They realize what happened. This, is, this whole thing is just turned into a horror movie, right? I mean, just all these dead people. Now, question. How do you take a suit off a dead person without touching him? Answer? You don't. He's been touching dead people all day long. I mean, he kills them, so there's that. They'll probably die near him, which is already a violation of his vow. And he's obviously touching them. So here he is violating the second, another part of his Nazarite vow. In number six, he was specifically told he could not go near a dead person, even if a person dies Near you, you have to go and make a sacrifice to atone for that, start the vow over and shave your head. He does none of that. He just ignores it. But he keeps his strength. So you can imagine now, a person that's been told, this long hair of yours is a sign of the supernatural strength you have because it's a sign of your Nazarite vow. Now he breaks his Nazarite vow once. He eats unclean food. He breaks it again. He touches dead bodies times 30. I would even submit to you that he's broken it another time because this week-long feast, as the men do, it's understood that when it says this is how the young men did things, he's integrating with what they're doing. Guess what they're doing? They're not playing Monopoly. They're getting drunk 
is what's happening. They're all drinking. It's a, it's a seven-day bachelor party. You know, what happens in Timna stays in Timna, right? And he, unless you think that Samson is the one guy sitting there sipping his tea and drinking club soda while everyone else is drinking, you know, the strong stuff, I, I doubt that. The idea is he's trying to blend in. He's trying to make friends here. They're having this party. He comes up with this riddle, all of this. So he's drinking wine for sure and strong drink. So he's eating unclean food. He's drinking wine. He's touching corpses. And yet he still has his strength. This makes a little bit more sense to us when later on he's, he doesn't, I don't think Samson really ever believes if his hair's cut, he's going to lose his strength. Because every time he, he breaks his Nazarite vow, he's fine. We'll see. So the whole point of Samson's life is that whether he knows it or not, he is to be at war with the Philistines. So technically he's not, he's not a mass murderer here. He's a one-man army. This is a wartime ethic. He is being called by God to wipe out these Gentiles. That's what's supposed to happen here. By his very nature, he's in opposition to these enemies of God. He wants to make friends and settle down, but God wants him to be different. Wants him to be deadly. And wants him to be the deliverer of Israel. So the Philistines have no idea what they've started. They don't, they don't know what they've unleashed here. Samson's rampage has only just begun. In fact, the narrator already starts reloading for next week because in verse 20 he says and kind of unbeknownst to him samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man so this little episode ends with the reminder that his homie now has his honey <laughs> and he storms off in hot anger but what happens when the hulk is by himself and calms down after a while. He returns to being the mild-mannered Bruce Banner. And that's kind of what's going to happen here. Samson is going to calm down, get over himself, and come back home to meet his wife. And he's going to find her married to one of the Philistines. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. I just want to give you a little practical hint here. Ten ways to ensure a bad marriage that we learned from Samson. Ten ingredients for a really bad marriage. Number one, choose a wife based on looks or a husband based on muscles. Number two, ignore the counsel of your parents. Number three, disobey the word of God. And by the way, in 1 Corinthians um, 6, we're told, do not be unequally yoked. And we'll, we'll deal with that in a whole sermon with unbelievers. Believers are not to marry unbelievers. So disobey the word of God. Number four, keep secrets from your wife. Recipe for disaster. Number five, gamble with the, your groomsman at your wedding. Yeah, well, ways to ensure a bad marriage. Go to Vegas for your bachelor party, in other words. Number six, have secret conversations with men behind your husband's back, ladies. She's got this whole deal going on with the Philistines. Number seven, nag and manipulate your husband. Number eight, give in to the nagging and manipulation of your wife. Number nine, leave your wife after a fight without telling her where you're going or when you'll come back. And the number ten thing you can do to ruin your marriage, call your wife a heifer. <laughs> My question to you is, are you living a life that is contrary to God's will? Yes, God's going to use Samson mightily, but Samson is still at odds with God's will for his life. James chapter 4 verse 4 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's James verse 4. 
chapter 4, verse 4. You can't be a friend of God and a friend of the world. Just ask Samson. He's trying so hard to blend in with the people that he lives around. He wants to marry into their culture. He wants to party with these people. He wants to be just like them. But this is not what God has for him, and this is not what God has for us. God doesn't want us to blend in and be like the world around us. We're not meant to be friends. The world hated our Savior. The world's going to hate us. So don't live contrary to your calling. Well, as I said, when the Hulk calms down, he's going to return to the mild-mannered Bruce, mild-mannered Bruce Banner and come back. And the narrator has left us with the same sort of dot, dot, dot. Uh, he anticipates that Samson is going to come back and do something about this situation. When the Hulk calms down, he, he has torn clothes. People fear him. There's devastation left in his wake like the path of a hurricane, and that's exactly what's happened here. Samson has now started a war with the Philistines that he cannot de-escalate. But I want that anticipation to last for another week, so come back next week and we'll see what happens. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we're really moved when we think of your grace and your mercy in our lives, that at many times we, like Samson, have disobeyed your will, um, trying to be friends with the world. And yet, because you love us, you make that difficult. You want us to be separate and holy for our blessing and for the purity of the church and the reputation of Christ our Savior, who was holy and also persecuted by the world. We pray, Lord, for wisdom in how to do that. We pray that you would help us to be consecrated for your purposes. And now as we turn to the Lord's Supper and we think of your life and death for us, Lord Jesus, I just pray that you would help us to Remember to live holy lives even this very week. We pray these things in your name. Amen.